Tales from the Break Room is a podcast about allegedly true scary workplace stories. These stories are sent to us by listeners. If you want your story narrated on the show, send it to us at eeriecast.com submit. Hi, welcome to Dead and Roasted. What can I get you? Oh, uh, sorry. I'm just sort of out of it today. You see, people like to share their scariest work stories with me, right? Well, I heard one the other day that has absolutely boggled my mind. I mean, this story was so rough. My innocence grew back just so the story could rip it away from me again. And you know what? I'm gonna share it with you today. Skip your coffee and grab your booster seat. This is gonna be a disturbing one. My good friend Niall, who you might recognize from Oni Plays and Sleepy Cabin, joins me for a story today. I'll also be adding an old story I've told on Unexplained Encounters, which fits here pretty well, so you might recognize it. These are Tales from the Break Room. Warning. The following story contains harsh depictions of violence against pets. Cynthia. From Officer Nobody. I'm a young police officer in a southern city. As a child, it was my dream to become one. I made tinfoil badges and carved sticks to look like pistols. I took reports with crayons and chased imaginary criminals. Twenty or so years later, I average three hours of sleep and have grueling anxiety attacks. Like my peers, I've seen terrible things. It's what we signed up for, so I don't expect sympathy. In 2018, I responded to a welfare check where I found a two-week-old, decomposed body. The man had hanged himself with copper wire inside a closet. His skin was so rotted that it separated where the wire attached. It was an unwanted but gnarly anatomy lesson. It was mid-June, so the smell was unbearable. But hey, dead bodies were a dime a dozen. In 2019, I helped scrape a woman from the pavement following a crash. Her survived husband watched from a distance. But hey, I dealt with hysterical loved ones weekly. In 2020, I watched a homeless man burn alive inside a shed. He had locked the door from the inside and couldn't find the key. The window was too narrow to climb out of. His space heater had caught fire. But hey, the fire marshal took the report. I don't mean to sound callous or smug. I only want to depict reality. The truth is, as disgusting as those stories are, they are not the reason behind my insomnia. They are not the reason for my anxiety. Frankly, I hardly think about them. My trauma comes from 2021, where I responded to a call that haunts me every second. It was around 3 a.m. I was typing a larceny report in my car while Ozark played in the background. It was the scene where Wendy's lover gets thrown off a building and goes splat in front of Marty. Crazy scene. It was a mid-80s summer night amongst a full moon. By that time, everything was calm. The night shift was shorthanded, so my typical beat partner wasn't working. Dispatch requested me for a welfare check. Welfare checks are usually harmless, although it is when you find the most dead bodies. Welfare checks are what they sound like, checking the welfare of a person and ensuring they're okay. The reporting party is usually a family member who couldn't get a hold of the person. I received this information and began driving. I was tasked with checking the welfare of an elderly woman who lived alone on the outskirts of town, barely within city limits. Her granddaughter lived a few states away and hadn't heard from her. She assumed that her grandma accidentally switched her cell phone to silent as she often did. Dispatch usually sends two officers, but every now and again they'll give an officer an option to take the call alone. Because of staffing levels and the nature of the call, I decided to handle it myself. Worst case scenario, Granny bit the dust and I would call a medical examiner to work an unattended death. I drove a good 15 minutes to the residence, another 100 feet north and it would have been county jurisdiction. Lucky me, right? There were no other houses in the area. It was so quiet that the sound of gravel under my tires was thunderous. Beyond the mailbox was a locked gate and a long dirt driveway. 
I absolutely did not want to walk that driveway alone in the dark without my patrol car. I grabbed my radio to call for another officer, but changed my mind. I would have looked silly asking for help after committing to doing it solo. Plus, it would have been an even longer drive for them. I decided to man up, jump the gate, and make what turned out to be the worst decision in my life. If it wasn't for the moonlight, it would have been so dark that I couldn't see my feet. I was trained to be tactical with my flashlight, only using it in short bursts. It was a good way to be sneaky. I finally reached the house and stood in front of it. It was an old wooden home with two stories. Every window was pinch black, besides one on the second floor, and had a purple curtain with white stripes. I stepped on the unstable wraparound porch and listened carefully. There was nothing but absolute silence. No TV, no creaks, no fans, nothing. Tentatively, I knocked and announced myself. There was no answer and no noise. I knocked even louder and announced again, still nothing. I stepped off the porch to reevaluate the situation. Once far enough, I looked up to the second story. The light was off. Typically, something like that wouldn't creep me out, but the hair on the back of my neck stood straight up. Since the light was off, I couldn't see whether someone was looking back at me. I had a terrifying feeling that they were. I grabbed my flashlight and shined it in through the window. No one was standing there, but the curtain had moved and was still swaying. I went back to the door and knocked even louder, telling her who I was and why I was there. Cynthia, it's Officer Blank with the Blank Police Department. I'm just checking your welfare. I stood there for several minutes in eerie silence. I was ready to hightail it back to the road, but figured I'd wait another minute. I had done my job for the most part. I was there to make sure she wasn't dead. If she wanted to ignore me, fine. I was creeped out, and without a partner, I wasn't going to press the issue. For some reason, before walking away, I decided to try the doorknob. This isn't usual practice, since it could be deemed a violation of the Fourth Amendment. I couldn't enter the home without a warrant, exigent circumstances, or permission. To my surprise and regret, the door opened. Apparently, the heavy wooden door needed its hinges tightened, because it slowly opened all the way until it knocked against the wall. I shined my light inside. It was definitely an old woman's residence. Everything was lavender and tidy. There were creepy portraits of hairless cats in the walls. There were also statues of them. I reached my hand inside to flick on the light, but it didn't activate. At first, I thought the house had no power. There were no sounds of electricity at all, and it was hotter than a sauna with no airflow. Then I remembered the light upstairs. The whole situation was odd and unsettling. I decided to dial my supervisor to get his opinion. I was hoping he would tell me to leave, call the reporting person, and explain what I observed. Before I was able to dial, I heard a sound which haunts me every night. A chilling noise that will die with me. You won't believe me and I don't blame you. It was the sound of intense laughter. Not a giggle, but delirious, gut-busting laughter from what sounded like an old lady. I never drew my Glock faster than I did right then. Hello? Who's in there? Before I could finish the sentence, it stopped. I'm not too embarrassed to admit that I turned around and bolted for my car, gun in hand. Just as I left the porch, I was stopped in my tracks. Another equally loud and terrifying noise echoed from the house. This time, it was a scream of someone clearly in distress. It sounded like the same voice, but I wasn't sure. Dang it, I thought to myself. Exigent circumstances. I radioed dispatch and told them what I heard. I advised them that I would be clearing the house. Another officer started en route, but I couldn't wait. I wanted to, but there was no way I could explain waiting 15 to 20 minutes to enter the house of an elderly woman in danger. I entered the hot living room and cleared the immediate area. I knew at least one person was upstairs. 
The narrow staircase led to a pitch black second floor. Before going up, I announced myself again, and again, to no avail. I began walking up the staircase as calmly as I could. I remember imagining a scenario where I'm clearing the bedrooms and Cynthia pops out of a dark corner. I'd have to explain to the reporting person why I shot her grandma in the face. When upstairs, I checked two rooms that were completely empty. No furniture or anything. I then realized that the last bedroom was the same one that had the light. I announced myself and prayed for a response. I didn't get one, so I grabbed the doorknob and twisted. I swung it open and was immediately met with a nauseating odor. It was the worst I'd ever experienced, almost knocking me down. I illuminated the room with my light. In every corner, on every wall, were dead, skinned cats pinned to wooden crosses. Some were rotten, some were fresh. There was dried blood literally everywhere. Fur and detached claws covered the floor. I dry heaved as I cleared the closet. It was empty. I stumbled my way back downstairs where I vomited on the front porch. I ran to the road to wait for my partner. Once he arrived, we called for even more people and my supervisor. We cleared the house again with no signs of Cynthia. Fast forward to the next evening. The reporting person flew in with other family members. They searched the ten or so acres and found an old abandoned car in the brush. They found her grandma there, leaned back in the passenger seat, deceased for what appeared to be several days. Neither detectives nor the medical examiner would determine the cause of death. Detectives interviewed another family member who said Cynthia had severe schizophrenia and dementia. Inside her home in a kitchen drawer, detectives discovered pages and pages of Hebrew writings. The writings translated to devoted allegiances to the devil Tarot, a devil god that many Satanists worship. Her writings claimed that Tarot asked her to sacrifice her beloved cats. Some believe that I heard Cynthia's laughter and scream and that the upstairs light was on. Some don't. Trust me, sometimes I question it myself. For some reason, my body camera never downloaded to the system. It's like the footage never existed, even though I know it was on. No other calls from that night downloaded either. It even baffled my department. I have constant nightmares about Cynthia. In them, she's laughing with the same terrifying laugh. She has unusually long fingers and nails that almost scrape the ground when she walks. I never move fast enough to get away from her. I reach for my gun, but it's never there. She always gets me, and then I wake up. I don't know why I'm still a cop. Maybe it's all I know how to do. I only have 12 more years and many, many more therapy sessions before I can retire. I wasn't a supernatural believer before my experience, but I am now. To those aspiring to be police officers, heed my advice. Be a firefighter instead. Couple out of time from Graymoire. It should be noted that I no longer work at this place, but for the last year or so, I had a job at a certain German-owned grocery store. I did a little of everything at this store, but on this particular day I was a front-end cashier. Because we were really short-staffed, I was the only one ringing at the time, but there were other workers throughout the store stocking shelves and shopping for curbside, etc. As a front-end cashier, I checked out every customer. It wasn't a big deal as it was a slow day and still pretty early, so I was only ringing every 10 minutes or so. Because it was so slow, I was up and about cleaning and chatting with some of the regulars, that kind of thing. I had a clear view of the entrance because of this, so I noticed when this elderly couple walked in. They both looked very old, probably pushing their mid-70s and both had plastic shopping bags hanging from their arms. I immediately got weird vibes from them. They were dressed really well but maybe a little too well for a trip to this particular grocery store, if that makes sense. 
It's a bargain store known for relatively cheap prices. The man was in a tan and white three-piece suit, complete with a blue tie. He also had one of those fancy canes with a metal handle which he was grasping while a heavy looking bag weighed his arm down. The lady had really short white hair, big wire rimmed glasses, and she was in a pressed white outfit, a mid-length white tube skirt and a blue flower pin to the white jacket. She was very small and frail looking. This couple came up to me with their plastic bags and asked if there was a way to do returns. This particular store has an extremely lax return policy. Basically anything can be brought back, as long as it isn't a specialty item, you can select a replacement for the item, as well as get a refund for it. So, of course, I immediately agreed, and led them to my register where I could ring the return. They dropped their bags on the belt and one of them came open slightly. Immediately I was hit with a really nasty smell like rotten garbage, probably 10 or 15 big fat flies came out of the opening. I tried not to react since the couple didn't seem to be bothered by the flies and when the bags rolled up to me I opened each one really carefully to see what was inside. There were three total. The first was full of moldy brown mush that looked like the kind of stuff you'd see at the bottom of a public trash can. The second bag was full of stinky raw grey meat that had maggots all over it. And the third bag just contained a few unopened packs of cookies. I was trying really hard not to gag. The smell was atrocious. The couple was just smiling at me, completely unmoved by the whole thing. I explained to them that I could just type in the item codes, but that they'd have to tell me what the heck I was even looking at. The lady responded, saying in this really weak and faraway voice, Vegetables? We got them just last week. And now look at them. Broccoli and cauliflower. All turned bad. I looked at the mush again. Yeah, there was no way they got that just last week. This stuff looked like it had been in a hot trunk for six months, but I couldn't refuse them, so I agreed to type in the codes for broccoli and cauliflower. Then I asked about the meat. Pork, I think, the old lady said, her voice kind of dreamy. We got that just this weekend, and now look. I opened it last night, and it was already like that. I just smiled and nodded, but... In my mind, I was thinking, yep, no way. These people probably just raided our dumpster for stuff to exchange for free food and some extra cash. Scammers are pretty frequent at this store because the policy is so lax. But it's not my job to turn them down and I wasn't paid enough to care that much about it, so I go ahead and type in the product code for the pork chops. Then I get to the cookies. I was happy to tie up the bags of rotten food and move on to something that didn't smell like vaporized food poisoning, but when I pulled the packages out, I got even more confused. It was two packs of Fig Newtons, and it was definitely from our store, but the label on it looked extremely dated. I tried scanning it just in case and the machine just read, Error. I flipped the package and saw a date for 1993 which is before I was even born, mind you. The lady piped up, Something wrong? I looked up at the two and actually got a good look at them. They were both smiling and they did look friendly and clean from a cursory glance, but their eyes, the whites of their eyes were all yellow, as you would see in someone who was jaundiced, but their skin didn't have that telltale yellow tint. They had these glazed sort of blank expressions in their eyes and their smiles definitely seemed forced. I just replied, uh, no, I'll just type these in too. Scanner must be broken. Because honestly, I just wanted this transaction to end. I was very uncomfortable by this point. I issued the refund and the couple left the register, but 
they continued to wander aimlessly around the store for two hours. I watched them for most of that time, totally confused and creeped out. They didn't do anything suspicious in that time, but they did act extremely off. Like they would just pick stuff up and stare at it for an uncomfortably long time before setting it back down and then moving on to do the same thing again with a different item. I went on break and sort of put the whole thing out of my mind. When I got back, I was sent to do another job in the store as my replacement cashier had gotten in and taken over. As I walked around the store, I actually did see that couple again, but this time the woman was lying in a pile of dog beds and the man was just standing over her, staring off into space. I told my manager about it and she checked in on them to see if the woman was okay. And she just sat up and said, Yep, just got tired. I was having a lie down for a moment. And my manager was like, In the dog beds? And the lady nodded. They're very soft, very good quality. You sell good stuff here, you know. And that was, for all intents and purposes, the end of it. The lady stayed in the beds for a long time, but when she finally got up, she and who I assume was her husband, who never spoke a word at this whole time, just left, without buying anything or saying anything else. We all just scratched our heads after that. I've had family who've suffered from dementia and Alzheimer's, had strokes and seizures and all that. Of course I know everyone is different, but these two people didn't act like anything I've experienced before. I don't know if they were ill or on some kind of medication that made them act weird or if they were just a genuinely strange pair. Then there's the issue of them being so well dressed and clean looking but having long rotten foods that they claimed were only a week old. Plus the cookies with 1993 dates on them. It was all so bizarre and we never actually saw the old couple again after that which is also unusual because most of the customers we get live nearby and shop with decent regularity with us. I even asked one of the older managers who's been working in that location for about 14 years if she'd ever seen them before. She's one of those people who knows everyone and always gets caught up in long conversations with all the regulars, so she told me that she's never even seen them before. So there's no real closure to this event. Sorry if you're all expecting more, but this definitely takes the cake on being the weirdest thing that I've ever experienced during my time in retail. I'd be interested to hear what y'all think and if you've ever experienced anything like this before. This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the US. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry while Steve, separately, researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. 
Listening to stories of disturbing criminals and mysterious encounters is fun, but why not become a part of the story? You should play June's Journey. In the Roaring Twenties, a woman is murdered, and her sister, June Parker, must find out who the killer is. Become a detective and search for clues through challenging yet fun hidden item games. Level after level, unlock new scenes and intrigue into some very scandalous family secrets, uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. June's Journey is a lot of fun, with gameplay that's easy to pick up but challenging enough to keep you playing. Your hard work is rewarded with an intriguing murder mystery, brought to life by beautiful 1920s scenery and atmospheric music. In between puzzles and story scenes, you can even decorate your island how you see fit, with gardens, structures, and more. You can even play with or against other players by joining a detective club, where you can also get a chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I've enjoyed playing June's Journey, especially on my porch in the morning. It's nice to get some nice warm sun and fresh air while solving this murderous case. I've always been a fan of point-and-click style games anyways, and my aging brain appreciates the light bulb feature that helps me find the trickiest items in a given scene, helping me to keep my combo alive. June's Journey is the perfect game for story, relaxation, or a good challenge. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. A Not-So-Friendly Ghost from Mystic Pizza I live on the outskirts of Savannah, Georgia. Savannah is known for being a very haunted city, and I can attest to that. I live on a small house next to my grandmother's property. My brother and I grew up with our grandparents in a house they built when they got married. The house itself was a new addition to a 10-acre property my grandparents owned. The property was part of what used to be a large plantation. Ever since we were young, we'd experienced many supernatural things that happened at that house, so ghosts and the supernatural became something we were used to. After I got married, we had a little house built next to Grandma's, and my brother moved closer to downtown Savannah. He's a tattoo artist, so the first thing he did was to look for a place to rent near downtown, which he turned into a tattoo studio. He's a pretty good tattoo artist, but he's really bad at managing the business, and since I have absolutely not one artistic bone in my body, but I'm very good at managing a business, I decided to help him with management of the studio. When we moved into the soon-to-be tattoo studio, the landlord informed us that the previous occupant had left because she believed that the place was haunted. But my brother and I grew up in a haunted house, so we didn't really mind. Since the first week of us moving in, stuff began to happen. Every morning when I would get to the business, there would be something knocked down. It would be the pictures we had on the walls or magazines we had on the shelf. I personally had a few stuffed animals on the shelf next to a few albums of clients' tattoos, and those stuffed animals would always be on the floor. My brother would not experience as much activity as me. It seemed the spirits in the shop didn't like me much or liked to scare me more than my brother. Now keep in mind, the tattoo studio is two stories. The bottom was where people got their tattoos, and upstairs was the office, a small kitchen, and a break room. I spent most of my day upstairs, and I would often hear footsteps going up or down the stairs. One day, when I was in my office, I could hear people talking in the break room, so I went in to join them, but as soon as I opened the door, the voices died down, and I saw that no one was in there. Most of this didn't bother me, since it was either noises or voices, or the stuff I would find on the floor but it never seemed aggressive, and I'd never felt threatened in any way. One day after work, we had a few friends stop by. We were talking about what had been happening since we moved here, but they didn't believe what I told them. One of them jokingly said, why would any ghost want to hang around here? Come on in, Mr. Ghost, and explain it to us. They started joking, making fun of things. Well, apparently the ghost didn't like that conversation. A while later, we heard a crash coming from upstairs. All of us ran up to see what had happened. When we got to the top, a chair which had previously been inside the break room was now lying in the hallway like it had been thrown. Our friends turned pale and got the heck out of there as fast as they could. I, like always, stayed behind cleaning up the mess. 
I was coming down the stairs when I caught a glimpse of someone moving on the bottom floor. I called out because I could make out what seemed to be a person wearing a blue or gray uniform, but when I got to the bottom of the stairs, no one was there. That was not the only time I saw that person in the uniform. About a week later, I got up early to head to work. It was supposed to rain that day, and I wanted to avoid driving during the worst of the rain. I arrived at the studio. It then began raining harder, so I sat inside my car for a bit, waiting for the rain to stop. My parking space was right in front of the studio. I sat inside the car and I looked toward the studio, the front of which had some very large windows on the bottom floor and smaller windows on the top. For some reason, I happened to look up and I could see someone inside. It looked to be a man, so I picked up my phone and called my brother. I asked if he was already inside. He said no, he was still at home. I told him I saw someone inside the studio. He told me to wait outside until he got there. I looked at the window, and the man I had seen was now gone. About half an hour later, my brother showed up. Together we went inside but found nothing, just the regular mess as usual. I should mention here that since the night we had our friends over and they made a joke about the ghost, the place changed somewhat. Before, the spirit there seemed mischievous. Messes, voices, noises, nothing really scary. But after that night, I began feeling watched, like that feeling you get when someone that is talking about you or doesn't like you is looking at you with hatred. It was uncomfortable. It got to the point that I didn't even want to go to work. One day we had a client come in. She was getting a pretty big tattoo and had her four-year-old daughter with her. She called me before her appointment and said her babysitter had canceled on her and she was going to have to cancel. She'd been looking forward to her tattoo, so I told her she could bring her daughter with her and I would keep an eye out on her while she got her tattoo done. She got there and I took the little girl upstairs while she got her tattoo. The girl was playing with some of her toys and a few of the stuffed animals I kept downstairs. Hours passed and I could see she was a bit anxious. She kept saying she wanted mommy so we got her toys and went downstairs. Her mom was soon done and before she left, I began heading upstairs but the little girl stopped me saying, don't go up there, the scary man said no. I looked at her and asked, where is this scary man? She pointed to the stairs. I stayed there until closing time. Things remained the same, my brother and I did the best we could. Things slowly started calming down a bit, until we had another get-together with some friends. It was my brother's birthday, so some of our friends and I decided to throw a little surprise party. At this point, all of our friends knew what was going on. Some had experienced things themselves, and some had heard about the goings-on at the studio. We closed up shop and stayed there eating and drinking and having a good time. Around midnight, we decided to call it a night. We were about to leave when I realized I'd left my purse upstairs, back in my office. I asked a friend to go with me. I got my purse and my friend started down the stairs. I was at the top about to head down when I heard a growl next to my ear. Then I felt a push and down I went. I know what you're thinking, that I was drunk. I'd been drinking and probably lost my balance. But I was sober. I was the designated driver. I was the one that was going to drive everyone home. Everybody was freaking out. They called an ambulance to take me to the hospital and I called my husband so he could drive everyone home. Turns out I broke my foot. My husband was pretty upset, so was my brother, and I, frankly, was tired. Don't get me wrong, my brother and I had many experiences with the supernatural, but this was the only time that something had hurt us, or me. I stayed home for about two weeks and tried to help as much as I could from home. But there are some things that I could not take care of from home. My brother kept asking me to come back to work. I think he was a little afraid to be there alone after closing. So I relented and decided to go back to work. I couldn't drive so my husband would drop me off before work and would pick me up after he got off work. The week after I got back to work, we had a friend come visit from Louisiana. She was also a tattoo artist and was going to go to a tattoo convention sort of thing, which is where you see other artists' works. You can also find out what's new in the tattoo world, like inks or new equipment and such. 
She got to the shop with a big smile, but as soon as she walked in, she froze. Her smile vanished. She looked at me and said, That man doesn't like you. He also doesn't like the fact you guys have parties here. I knew she was a little sensitive to spirits, but since ghosts never bothered me, I never really asked her anything. She said he had been a soldier in his previous life and had just been wandering around the area after he died. I asked why he was here, that I knew for a fact he had not been here before. She looked at me and simply said, he said he was invited. I explained what had happened and she told me to do a few things. She said to open all the doors and windows, get holy water, and sprinkle it around the studio while praying. She said to have a cross blessed and hang it at the front door. She also had me bless smaller crosses and hang them at each window. Afterwards, she said to close the doors and windows. She told me to bless the place every time things began to feel heavy again. I did everything she said, step by step, and I'm happy to say that our studio has gone back to normal. Well, we still have a few voices, but nothing threatening. And I'm okay with that. I know he's still hanging out outside the studio, I see him from time to time, and I stay away when I do, because frankly, he scares me. One time I got to the street that turns into the studio, it was raining really hard, and not many people were about. I turned into the plaza, and as I got closer to the studio, my radio went crazy changing stations on its own. I turned my head and saw a man wearing a uniform crossing the road. He got halfway across and slowly started to fade away. I turned into my parking space and ran inside. I know he's still out there, but in here in our studio, with our friendly ghosts, I feel safe and I plan to keep it this way with him outside. I wasn't talking to my sister. From Anna C. This happened to me a few hours before I started preparing for work that day. It started late one night, having woke up from sleep. I figured it was too dark out for me to start preparing for work for the day. I was about to go back to sleep when I noticed that one of our dogs was throwing up near my bed. More concerned about the dog than the mess on the wooden floorboards, I went over to him and tried soothing him. When he stopped throwing up, he scrambled up to my bed and began sleeping. That's when I noticed my sister sitting on her bed across from mine. She was looking at me in silence. I headed for the bathroom, which was part of our shared bedroom, asking her to help me clean up the mess on the floor. I got some toilet paper and went back to our room. My sister was still on her bed, sitting crisscross. She was wearing a pair of shorts and a loose white shirt. I was annoyed seeing as how she hadn't even gotten up to help me. So I told her again to get up, that we still have this mess to get rid of. I began cleaning up and she still just sat there. She was doing absolutely nothing. She said absolutely nothing. I could feel her eyes on me though. I stood up from the floor, telling her that I would get another batch of toilet paper, but this time she should help me out. I looked at her as I was saying this while making my way back to the bathroom. This time she looked back at me, but still said nothing. A few seconds later, I was out of the bathroom and I was surprised to see that my sister was gone from the room. Mumbling to myself about how I'll just scold her later, I went back to cleaning up the last traces of the mess. Once that was done, I was ready to go back to my bed. I decided to look for my sister first. It was late at night, past midnight. Where could she have gone? I went out of our room and checked the different areas of the house. Everything was so quiet. Most every room was dark, the lights inside still turned off. I even opened up the front door to make sure she wasn't outside, doing who knows what. I was greeted by the lone light bulb dangling near our front door. Everything was quiet there too. I shut the door and went back to our room, thinking I'd find her there and I just missed her. But her bed was still empty. I flopped down on my bed figuring she probably went to our aunt's house, which sat beside ours. They keep late nights there. As I was drifting off to sleep, that was when I remembered something. My sister was on the night shift. She wasn't supposed to be at home during this time. She hadn't been here this entire time. 
You bet I set up right then and there, as if someone had dumped an ice-cold bucket of water on me. I looked around our room. It was empty, except for me and the dog at the foot of my bed, sleeping soundly. My heart was galloping like crazy. I reached for my mobile phone, dialing my sister's supervisor's phone number. When the supervisor picked up my call, I asked her as calmly as I could if I could please talk to my sister. I apologized for calling so suddenly, but it was kind of an important and urgent matter. The supervisor said she understood no problem. A couple of seconds later, I heard my sister's familiar voice on the line. I was shocked. I told her the real reason I was calling, stuttering and mumbling on some parts. My sister was creeped out. I told her I didn't know what it meant when I saw her doppelganger, but I wanted to make sure she was safe. She told me not to worry. I hung up and looked around the room once more. It was dark, save for the light leaking from the window and the bedroom door, which I forgot to close. I just experienced my first ever doppelganger encounter. I even talked to the thing. This experience was very unreal, but it wasn't scary. I felt nothing sinister from it. It was just there. Its eyes followed my movements. She never talked, and I belatedly realized she never blinked either. And I wonder up to this day if all doppelgangers don't blink. New Hire Nightmare from Parkler. Back in 2015, I was working in food service, specifically as a supervisor for a coffee shop. Pretty soon into my actual training, the manager at the time decided she was going to leave and open up her own coffee shop. She hired maybe three to four people before leaving so that we wouldn't, in her words, be short-staffed. While doing this, she was not as careful as she was before about who she was hiring. Which brings me to my work nightmare. Tony will be his name in the story. Tony seemed nice at first. He was probably in his early 20s, average height and thin build. I was a short 23-year-old who was living as a stealth male, as I was transitioning from female to male. At this point, I have almost all of my surgeries and have been on hormones for three years, so there was truly no questioning. People didn't know unless they were told. My co-workers were all well aware, because they had been there for most of my surgeries. Tony was not very good at his job. He was struggling to pick it up and was stressing everybody out. I always tried to be nice to him though, because I know how hard learning all that could be, and that's just my general personality. One night while I was sitting at the bar with my dad and my best friend, enjoying a drink before a lacrosse game, I got a Facebook message request. I skimmed through the profile of someone named Riley for a minute and then opened the message. It seemed normal. It consisted of a standard greeting, a simple hi, how are you? And then it turned very dark very quickly when I asked who they were. It was obvious it was a fake account, so I didn't expect anything other than to be trolled. That was until they said that they knew who I was and where I worked, which wasn't out of the ordinary. A lot of our regulars were super friendly with me, so much so that they would often give me gifts before my surgeries. But this certainly was not a regular. As I opened up the new message after hearing the familiar ding and feeling the phone vibrate, I was horrified. It was a slew of messages threatening to throw hot coffee on my face, beat me up at work, and many more things. The messages taunted me saying I couldn't prepare for it because I had no idea who they were so I wouldn't know who to look out for. Now, I know that doesn't sound too scary, but let me set the scene. I worked at a kiosk in the mall. Everything around me was open, as well as the back of the kiosk being wide open to a seating area for us, as well as a staircase leading to and from upstairs. There was very little protection. When the mall and police came together and did drills for active shooters, we would have to go hide in other stores or hope we could make it to the back room which was down a dark, barely lit old hallway that was not as populated as you would think. A few days pass from getting the first message request, and I'm still getting these messages, but I'm not answering as much, if at all, sometimes. I was hoping that if they didn't get the responses they wanted, they would just leave me alone. But then they said something one day. It was something that keyed me in on the fact 
that this was Tony. Tony made a comment about how I was not a real man, and that while I was going down the hall to the back room at night, they were going to teach me a lesson. And he threatened me with sexual assault, stating that no one could help me. I was horrified. At this point, most of my coworkers knew a little bit about what was going on, enough that they were all worried and protective over me, which made the kiosk tense, especially since everyone agreed it was probably Tony. Our manager refused to listen to us, but said he would put us on separate shifts. My brother even went and bought me a keychain with mace on it, which you have to travel outside of where we live to a state three hours over to purchase. I added that to my keys for work, and my ex-boyfriend at the time made sure that I had a small wooden baseball bat in my car at all times. Whenever I would go on break, whether Tony was working or not, especially when he wasn't, all my coworkers would keep an eye out on the open spots of the kiosk to make sure everything was okay. I remember vividly one time, one of the shyest coworkers peered over the kiosk and could not see where I was sitting and quickly ran out panicking. Those messages kept coming with threats and eventually we hit a breaking point. One day we were slammed with customers and Tony was working. Most of the customers were being polite about the wait and with Tony not being too good at his job yet. I tossed him on the register. We had two of them, so he wasn't working alone. I was supporting the staff by filling the ice bins, getting them things they were low and out of, when suddenly a coworker walked up. They were pale and looked flustered. I was told a customer wanted to speak to the person in charge, so I stepped outside the kiosk, taking off my apron and approaching the woman away from everyone. The woman told me that she didn't want to get anyone in trouble, and by that sentence alone I knew it would be bad, but I could have never imagined what she would tell me next. She proceeded to explain that not only was Tony rude when she told him he gave her the wrong food item and complained her drink order was too crazy, it was only a hot latte with two Splendas, but then told her it was her fault because she sounded like, quote unquote, she had a man's groin in her mouth. At this point, the poor lady was holding back tears. She told me she was already self-conscious about her voice as she had beat cancer and was left with her voice changed forever. I wish I could have seen my face because I was mortified. I quickly began apologizing, asking her to wait around a moment while I called our manager and HR. I asked a coworker to run the floor for a moment and told Tony to go do some back of housework, like cleaning the milk fridge. Once Tony walked away, I filled four recovery cards and refunded the woman's order while calling the manager. The customer left, telling me I didn't have to do all of that, but that I made the situation right just by being kind. A day passed and Tony was given a final warning. I dreaded having to work with him, but I knew during launch week I had no choice. One night after a few really disgusting messages from Riley, I deliberately said something that I figured would make Tony finally admit it was him. And sure enough it did, but not how I was planning. I came in for my shift the next day. The manager asked to have a meeting with me. I walked into the back room with another supervisor who was also asked to be there. And who else was there? Tony. Turns out Tony claimed that I was saying racist things to him and without me having proof, I was given a warning. That's when Tony turned around and specifically mentioned how over Facebook I called him a sexual predator, which I'd only said to this Riley. I looked at Tony and I yelled, I knew it was you. He tried to turn it around and said that it was his friends. That was the icing on the cake. My manager finally had something to prove that he was the one messaging me. He was fired that day on the spot. Work felt a lot less stressful. But we were all still pretty worried because now he was angry at me. My manager reached out to the mall security, and that's when we found out the most amusing news. Something the original manager should have found out earlier when she hired Tony. Tony was banned from the mall a year prior. He wasn't even supposed to be in the mall. After a bit of time passed and he was no longer able to come to the mall, I began to enjoy my work again. So, Tony... Let's never meet again. My most horrifying experience as a cop. An account shared with us by Mythology Loves Horror. I've been a cop since I was 22 years old. 
I graduated at the top of my class, acing my exams and tests. It wasn't long before I had a job offer after my official graduation. Despite the job being across the country, I eagerly took a flight and flew over, wanting to be seen as dependable and excited. Even so, nothing that they could have taught me in training would have prepared me for the horror that can stem from living in Vermont. If the freezing temperatures or angry bull moose don't kill you, then there's still plenty of other things that will. When I first agreed to take the job as an assistant trainer at the state police barracks in Newport, I thought it'd be all pretty green mountains and delicious maple syrup, but I was wrong. I originally came from Anaheim, California, and I'm convinced that this frigid wasteland will be the death of me. I've always considered myself a tough woman, but I know now that I'm woefully unequipped to handle everything out there. I don't think anyone's equipped to handle a situation like this one. The call that started this experience should have been a standard domestic abuse case, but it turned into something else. In the three and a half years that I've been there, I've seen humans and animals frozen to death, lumberjacks squished by fallen trees, cars that had been totaled after running into a gigantic moose, and timber rattlesnakes that are as mean as any diamondback. I thought all that was bad enough, but I was not prepared to find myself in a situation that I could not logic my way out of. I didn't have any paperwork left to do that Saturday, and because I'm trained in the field, I asked my friend Officer T if I could ride with him on a domestic abuse call that had just come in. His partner had already gone home for the night, so he readily agreed to take me along as backup. As we threw on our jackets and headed out to the snow-dusted patrol cruiser, I felt a flutter of excitement. I hadn't gone out in the field in a few months, and I'd been itching for some action now, especially since my most recent class had graduated. I looked over the notes, ingraining them into my mind. We were to speak with a Mr. B who was the suspected wife-beater. Officer T and I drove for about 15 minutes, and eventually we found ourselves on one of those pothole-covered roads that Vermont is famous for. The snow was nearly up to our thighs, and even our tactical SUV was having some trouble getting up a few of the icier hills. We cursed our luck at being sent to a residence out in the countryside, especially since it was about 7 p.m. and it was pitch black out. It was a concerned neighbor who had called us, and when we got to Mrs. F's house to hear her report, the distressed woman told us that there were strange screams coming from the creek area behind the houses. We'd been under the impression that the fighting had been occurring inside her neighbor's house, but apparently that was not the case. She led us out to her back porch, and sure enough, after stepping through the doorway, we heard screams. They were very hard to describe. They sounded like a strangely pitched version of a frantic woman yelling. Each scream lasted for about three to 10 seconds, though it never sounded like it was saying actual words. It was more a cry of sheer terror, stuck on an infinite loop. My adrenaline was pumping so hard that I didn't even want to bother knocking on Mr. B's door. Protocol dictates that we could go next door and question the suspect, but under circumstances where someone is clearly in trouble, we're allowed to prioritize their safety over standard inquiries. This being the case, we sprinted from the porch, making our way as quickly and carefully as we could towards that awkward sound. Officer T and I heard two more screams. Each of them getting louder as we approached the creek. We were both getting a little unnerved, and as we made our way deeper into the woods, we quietly discussed whether or not we thought it was an animal or a person. 
The screams of a mountain lion can sound just like those of a distressed woman, and our little flashlights weren't doing much to illuminate the shadow-filled forest. We were finally beginning to approach the creek bed, and we hadn't heard a scream for about five minutes. We had begun calling out for someone to come forward if they were there, or to help lead us to whoever was hurt, but there was no other sounds. I had been checking for footprints, but there were only ours and deer tracks. The powdered snow that we were kicking up was causing a fine sheen of mist-like coverage, but even so, we did a thorough sweep of the area and hadn't seen any signs of a blood trail or struggle. Officer T and I were just about to turn back and head for the car when the air around us erupted into a cacophony of shouting, screaming, and savage howling. We were both startled, and I could see my confusion echoed in his face. I opened my mouth to make sure that he was experiencing the same crazy phenomenon that I was, and then we heard an exact copy of that scream from when we were on the porch. It came from directly behind us, but there was nothing there but an open clearing. Officer T resolutely marched into the woods on the opposite side of the clearing to investigate. And then there was a chunk of silence for several minutes. I didn't even hear his footsteps crunching for a long time, and I was starting to get anxious. About ten minutes later, he emerged from a different direction, and for a split moment... I thought that I saw his eyes shine bright yellow in the beam from my flashlight. I dismissed that thought, knowing that the glint of snow off the light was playing tricks on me. Officer T beckoned me over, but I told him that we needed to get out of here. He looked almost angry for a moment, then he crossed the clearing to me. I watched with unease as he plowed awkwardly through the snow, stumbling like he had been drinking. I was about to ask what was wrong with them when an odd cry came from our right. I nearly screamed out loud. That was the last straw for me. I grabbed Officer T's arm and all but dragged him back through the snow, keeping a firm grip on his bicep so that he wouldn't stumble again. I was 60 pounds lighter than him, but my adrenaline was pumping so strongly that I was able to get us through the snow and up the hill like it was nothing. Just as we got halfway back to the house, the scream came again, this time sounding like it was right next to me. In a panic, I frantically shone my flashlight around in every direction to find it, to find what we were being pursued by. But there was nothing. In that glacial Vermont forest, there was not even a glint of animal eyes, no rustling of bushes, no sounds of footfalls, just tense silence after that scream. As I frantically traced our steps back to the house, a desperate wail sliced through the air. But I swear, I heard it calling my name. By then, I was too horrified to go back out there. I tried my best to keep my wits about me, enough to stop and tell Mrs. F to call us if anything else occurred. But she never did call again, and the officer who did a follow-up the next day did not report anything unusual. That night, I got Officer T and I out of there as fast as the cruiser would go, and I don't regret that choice. I still have no idea what was in those woods, but as an avid outdoors woman, I know no animal makes that kind of well. Whenever I bring this up, Officer T just says the same cryptic sentence, telling me that I should be glad I got out of there alive. He says that the danger that night was closer than I knew. I think only he knows how close of a call it was. Tales from the Break Room is a viewer-submitted podcast featuring allegedly true scary stories that happened on the way to, on the way from, or at work. If you want your story to be narrated on the show, 
send it to us at eeriecast.com submit. As of April 14th, we're paying three cents per word for stories that are approved and make it onto the show. Submission does not guarantee approval or payment. For a limited time only, PayPal only. Tales from the Break Room is an EerieCast Network original podcast hosted by Darkness Prevails. You can follow him on Twitter at Dark Prevails, and you can hear thousands more stories read by him on our other show, Unexplained Encounters. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and rate Tales from the Break Room on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also enjoy plenty more horror-themed podcasts at EerieCast.com. <laughs>